our faith in the abstract. That the spiritual warfare of powers and principalities is confined to the heavenly realms. We tend to think that the supernatural is that which breaks the laws of physics and reality. And therefore, we can dismiss it as being both impossible and irrational in an orderly world. We look at the paranormal, the supernatural miracles, and say these things, they are breakdowns in the logic of creation. They cannot possibly be anything which is understandable in comparison to the hard laws of physics. But I want to posit something to you today. That perhaps the supernatural isn't the breaking of the laws of physics, but the perfection and restoration of them. That the miracles that we see Christ do are not coming to assault creation and tear it down, but instead to restore it back to its providential design. And I want us to ponder this, that perhaps these supernatural miracles, they are not the breaking of the laws of physics, but the perfection of them. That the immaterial world, those important virtues and things, they are breaking into the world around us. Those ethereal powers, they actually mean something. Perhaps the great miracles of God are not behind the curtain manipulations of the elements of life or the quick swapping of cards done by a magician's sleight of hand where God quickly rips a broken piece from our world and then replaces it with a new one before anyone sees his dangerous appearance. But rather, the miracles are the skillful and holy actions of the resolute hand of God who is the master of all. The miracles that we find in the gospel are very, very important. They're not there by accident. They're not there as just a sideshow to say Jesus is like other people who have come along throughout history. There's a reason why they are of such precedent throughout the gospel ministry. Not only does Jesus perform such things, but then he commands his disciples to go out, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out the demons. The fact that such an amount of time is spent on them means there's got to be something to this. Why is it that God wants us to look at this? We know that all throughout scripture, God is a God of truth of objective truth, not subjectivity or this strange mystery where only a certain group of people get to see things and others don't. God wants all of his sons and daughters to be restored to him. So how do we reconcile all of these concepts? Well, today we're going to have a message that is titled, Reason Belongs to God. And we're going to find out that actually, as it turns out, God wants us to see clearly. God is in the business of making the unknown known in the business of setting all things correct and doing away with all plots and schemes which work under the surface and making sure that the good, the true, and the beautiful is asserted clearly where all can see it. So thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, again, the Nazarene Stream Preacher, and you can email me at jeffdylanproctor at gmail.com if you'd like to speak with me personally. And let's open up in prayer, and then we're going to look at Mark chapter 4. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come together and serve you. Lord, I pray that you open up our hearts and minds to receive that strength and courage which you have in store for us. Let us feel the victory of your gospel, very real and very present in our lives. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us. And we ask all of this in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So today we are going to read through all of Mark chapter 4. And then we're going to come back and re-emphasize that last passage in there about Jesus calming the storms. There are a lot of ideas and themes taught in Mark chapter 4, and they kind of build on one another. Again, I want us to be people who are critical thinkers, and we recognize that everything in the world is not just an either-or. Sometimes it's a both-and. Sometimes you do reject hell and embrace the kingdom of God, but there are often times where we have to put things in their proper place. And in the gospel, Jesus, he builds on the law. He builds on the, the old wisdom which God had revealed to us there in the Old Testament. He takes these things and he builds upon them and he brings us closer and closer to the throne of heaven. Not through some tower of Babel where we construct our own scheme to go up there and steal the throne of heaven, but through the righteous, proper avenue of God's truth, we are elevated up towards his kingdom. So let's read Mark chapter 4. Mark 4 begins, Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat on the sea and sat there. And while the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, he began to teach them with many things in parables. And in teaching, he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path. The birds came and ate it up. Other seed, it fell on rocky ground, and it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly, but since it had no depth of soil... When the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed, it fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seed fell into good soil, and it brought forth grain, 
growing up and increasing and yielding thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. And then Jesus said, Let anyone with ears to hear listen. And that, that language there, having ears to hear, that's very important. We find that all throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament. Because just being next to truth is not enough. Just putting it before people is not enough because a lot of times people, they have their eyes turned off to it. We have a very serious problem in our modern world where people ignore things if they don't want to live with the outcome or it doesn't give them the outcome they want. People may have some addiction in their life. They may have some infidelity going on in their marriage. And there is a very real problem where people will ignore stuff like this because they want, don't want to deal with it face on. This has infected every sphere of our society, and it is not something which is conducive to the pursuit of happiness, to the liberty which is found in the gospel. It is only conducive to the powers of hell. So let's pick back up in verse 10. When Jesus was alone, those who were around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. For those outside, everything comes in parables, in order that they may look, but not perceive. They may indeed listen, but not understand, so that they may not turn again and be forgiven. And Jesus said to them, Do you not understand this parable? Then how will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. The ones who are on the path where the word is sown, when they hear, Satan immediately comes in, takes the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones who are sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. But since they have no root and endure only for a while, when trouble or persecution on account of the world comes, they immediately fall away. And others are like those sown among the thorns. Those who hear the word, and when they hear it, they find themselves up against the cares of the world and the lure of wealth and the desire of things that come in and choke the word, they find that they yield nothing. And then there are those who are sown on the good soil. They hear the word and accept it, and they bear fruit, thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. And then Jesus said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under the bushel basket or under the bed? Is it not set on a lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be disclosed, nor is anything secret except to be come to light. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. And again he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear, for the measure you give will be the measure you get, and still more. For those who have, more will be given, and from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Once again, in these passages, we find Jesus asserting the importance of having eyes to see and ears to hear. We have to recognize that none of us are beyond deception. We're not beyond deceiving ourselves or being deceived by the world. We have to take everything with a grain of salt that comes from the world and even from ourselves and then weigh that against the holy and perfect truths which have been revealed to us by God. We don't have to have all the answers in, in the world to have wisdom. In fact, that's one of the things which is really beautiful about Scripture is it comes to help us fill in the gap so that we can think and not have the world think for us or something else, but we can be really thinking ourselves, but have the holy and righteous tools of God to help us move in that direction of clarity and sanity. Because quite often, whenever people don't actually have eyes to see or ears to hear, they find themselves being very, very insane. One of the most prophetic things I've ever seen in life, and perhaps the most prophetic image, is of this woman who is dancing while her whole culture is dying. It happened in Myanmar here just a few days ago at the time of the recording of this sermon. She was there. She's someone who's a fitness trainer. She goes out and she makes videos. And she's out making her video one day. And she's got her coronavirus mask on. And behind her is a military coup driving through to destroy her society. Her whole culture is dying right behind her. And she's standing there dancing, doing the fitness video, wearing her mask like everything is fine. And it reminds me of how often people don't have eyes to see and ears to hear. You can go all the way back to Adam in the garden. He was sitting there, doing like this woman in the video, being passive, not paying attention to what was going on with Eve. Eve herself, she was doing this too, being passive, not having eyes to pay attention to what God wanted her to see, but only paying attention to the serpent's distractions. Here in the time of Jesus, there are people who see the miracles, but they don't really have eyes for them. They don't really have eyes for truth. So... They just ignore it. 
they, it's not so much that they try to contend with it or write things off, but they just look at it and say, wow, that's amazing. And they just shut their brain down and move on. Critical thinking is very important because God wants our minds not to be passive, but to be enriched, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. One of the great evils of hell is to try to convince people that faith and reason are against one another. That is just patently not true. And all the way across scripture, whether it be in Genesis, where God is creating the heavens and the earth with order, with purpose, with meaning, with rationale, with laws of physics, laws of beauty, laws of even music, and all the way down to the book of Revelation, you see God coming back to put things back in their order, to restore, to uphold those laws of physics that hold everything together and throw out the fractures and the, the breakings. And God desires that his creatures be restored. It's why God didn't just snap his fingers and end us all in a flood or something like that. God wanted that opportunity for restoration because he loves us. The love of God is why that we are here. Picking up in verse 26, Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if someone who would scatter seed on the ground and would sleep at night and rise during the day, and the seed would grow and sprout, but yet he would not know why. The earth produces of itself, first the stalk, then the head, and then the full grain in the head. But when the grain is ripe, at once he goes out with the sickle because the harvest has come. And again, we see Jesus He's telling us the world is meant to be logical and orderly. That is how God designed it. But even despite our un understandings that we may or may not have, we tend to have a lot less understandings than we think, but God still wants us to walk in his beauty. Verse 30 says, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which... When sown upon the ground, it is the smallest of all the seeds. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs. And it puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. And with many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them. And as they were able to hear it, he did not speak to them except in parables. But he explained everything in private to his disciples. And here we get to our final passage. And this is where Jesus steals a storm. And here in this text is where we're going to really look at our main sermon today. On that day, when everything had come, he said to them, Let us go to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took with him in the boat, and just as he was. Other boats were there with him, and a great windstorm arose. And the waves, they beat alongside the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus woke up and rebuked the storm. And he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Alrighty, so the title of today's sermon is Reason Belongs to God. And we have a problem in our modern world. The world wants us to think that we are critical thinkers, that we're people of reason, when in, in fact, if we actually look at what comes out of our mouth, it's in completely congruent structures what is coming out of Hollywood. We're talking exactly like the news media. We're talking exactly like popular culture. And that's not actually critical thinking. Um, but if you're here, if you're listening to the sermon, you're, you're probably somebody who wants to actually be walking in the gospel and not just the ways of the world. You see, the world wants us to commit the suicide of thought, where we think we are satisfying the good. You know, we think, you know, if I, I just, you know, in myself, that will be the, the right way out. If we think the right ideas, that will somehow get in a certain way. But God wants us to take our God-given will, our, our ability to think, our ability to reason, and make it to serve the good, the true, and the beautiful. It is the world that wants us to be passive and serve both sin and hell. It is the world that wants us to make our minds, you know, sedated and asleep where others think for us, where we just repeat what we hear and we think that we're smart because we're agreeing with what is said on the nightly news. God wants us to think for ourselves because that is actually where the opportunity for love is. If God just made us like clocks or like, you know, a little HO scale train where it just went around and did as God told it to and it flipped the switches, then there's no real love. If we have an opportunity to use our will to, you know, conform ourselves to God, then we're actually showing real love. 
There in the book of Job, the whole argument that Satan makes, the accuser, is God, your love, your righteousness, it is not real. Job is only righteous because you pay him to be righteous. You give him family and land and all these good things. And if you take that away, you'll find out that your righteousness is just a big old hoax. And God says, okay, try it. I'm in the business of objective reality, actually letting the truth have its day. Go ahead, try it. And as the book of Job ends, you know, all of Job's friends, his, even his wife, everybody wants him to just curse God and die. The devil wants him to curse God and die. But in the end, wisdom is vindicated by our children. The truth has its day. Goodness has its day. And God is victorious. The world wants us to commit the suicide of thought, where we think that there's no truth, no goodness. You have your truth. I have my truth. And nothing has any meaning. Our faith calls us to be patient and waiting for God, but also hastening the work of Christ's kingdom. The world often wants to bait us into going to war over narratives, emotional opinions, and all things petty. But Christ wants us to preach his message. You know, whenever there's something that happens in the world, we're always tempted to get into the weeds of the social issues and debate them using the language and the terms of the world. And even the topics that the world chooses for us. But when we do that, we're stepping out of the fortified kingdom that Christ has set for us and into the arena of, of hell. And you're never going to win that. You're never going to beat the devil at his own game. Christ says this, preach this message. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And the interesting thing is, is the reason why we often take bait to step into the various topics and discussions of the world is because we want to have an impact on the world. And we do need to have an impact on the world. But guess what? By answering the call that the world sets before us, you're not going to change the world. You're going to make yourself a slave to it. If you respond, not by talking about the things they want, but by talking about the kingdom of God, the healing power, the biblical worldview, then you actually have a greater chance to change the world, the politics, the culture, all that stuff. You're going to change that in a meaningful way by actually preaching the gospel and not just answering whatever is thrown at you. So this is the message that we must preach. The kingdom of, of heaven is near. Repent. When Christ calmed the storm at the end of Mark 4, he did something which was very substantial. He performed a miracle. And that is not something we should dismiss or discount. There is something substantial about what he does and the things that he says. Our world just wants to be obsessed with what people say and not ever really pay attention to the material facts, unless they can twist them. We do well to illuminate the truth of Jesus' miracles. There's a reason why they make up such a huge portion of the Gospels. They show us that the spiritual affairs are breaking into our material world, and Jesus' worldview, his mode of thinking, is actually correct. And we tend to think of our faith in the abstract, that the spiritual warfare of powers and principalities is confined to the heavenly realms. We tend to think that the supernatural is that which breaks the laws of physics and reality, and therefore we can dismiss them as both impossible and irrational in an orderly world. However, today I offer you this. That perhaps the supernatural is not the breaking of the laws of physics, but the perfection of them. Perhaps the great miracles of God are not behind the curtain manipulations of the elements in life or the quick swapping of cards done by a magician's sleight of hand where God, he rips out one broken piece from our world and replaces it before anyone sees his very dangerous appearance, which, by the way, is dangerous, you know. The seraphs there in heaven, they have to keep their eyes covered. If they were to peek and, and see God, they would be smote. God is not safe. He is very dangerous but he loves us. God is not the magician, the Wizard of Oz, but instead God is the master, the master craftsman, the master creator. He is the master. You don't even need to put another noun attached to the backside of that because he's just the master of all. Insert anything behind there, which is good, true, and of actual providential design, and God is the master of it. The miracles that we see, they are the skillful and holy actions of the resolute hand of the master. They're not breakdowns of the fallen world. They're not, you know, breaking the laws of physics. They're not that at all. The miracles are restorations back to the providential order of creation. And inasmuch as Jesus taught us wisdom through parables, he is extremely gracious in showing us signs. The calming of the sea is a material fact. And through such an act of domestication, Jesus shows us how the immaterial virtues break into the material world. Do not be deceived. The spiritual world is breaking into our physical world, and it has a substantial impact on everything in life. The arena of objectivity, the arena of objective truth, that actually belongs to God. 
Real science belongs to God. The sensational fake science belongs to the devil. And it is the devil who lives in opinions and subjectivity. And we can find this. Going back to Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And at the end of each day, God looks and says, it is good. But then the devil comes along, that ancient serpent, the diabolical one. And he comes along to Eve with a narrative. And he says, did God really say? Jesus firmly declared that he is the way, the truth, and the life. All things which are not claims of, of you know, philosophies and creeds, though they create philosophies and creeds, but they're claims of objective facts. Life either kind of is or isn't. A path is a material thing you can go out and walk on. Truth is something which is either true or not. Now we have all these things that want to come out and lie. It's also possible that you have liars who claim something is true and it is not. And Jesus' murderous accusers, they did not want to deal with objective reality. And when Jesus was on the cross, they were mad at Pilate for saying, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And they wanted to contrive a narrative that, again, didn't deal with the facts, but instead dealt with narratives. And they come along and said, Jesus said he was the King of the Jews. You know, stick that word allegedly in there. Let's get the, the legalistic stuff in there because we don't really know. All the narrative contrivances, they are nothing more than a wicked subterfuge of sinister dimensions. And not even the ancient world would deny the fact of the resurrection or the material miracles of healings and exorcisms. It would just create narratives and perspectives to try to distract from the hard facts. Reason actually belongs to God. And the more we pay attention to the logical order of God's creation, the more we are drawn to God. You know, beauty and truth are not explained by the, the teaching that says we accidentally happened because, you know, a few molecules and proteins decided to fuse together and boom, you get life. Because if that's the case, there's nothing more beautiful in looking at the majesty of a mountain or the contents of a septic tank. There's no natural, magical rule that says one is beautiful and the other is not. And you can't even say it's because of, of just, you know, survival of the fittest because there's lots of creatures that prefer the septic tank. And... When it comes to the truth, you know, why is it true that a man should be honorable before his wife and his family? Why is it true when someone honors their contract? These things are not explained by survival of the fittest. In fact, there are many lesser living creatures who do quite well, not mating for life, not being honorable to, to one another, and just stealing from one another perpetually. To actually understand beauty and truth is something which is not explained by sheer accidents themselves. There has to be some reason behind it. And we often forget that the word reason itself, purpose, these, these things are woven together. Reason is not opposed to God. And it's been a very clever trick of hell to make us believe the foolery that reason and faith are contradictory to one another. They're not. Scripture has been all along been trying to tell us that this is not the case. One of the reasons why you see the serpent, when he brings about his cosmic battles, looking so strange, why you can't compare the demons to just a hawk that sits on, on a tree branch. Um, of course, they're both predatory and they both watch, but one of the reasons why you can't talk about the material form of the demon is because it's not part of creation. It's unreasonable. It's not part of the created order. Reason is not opposed to God, but the whitewashed idolatry that charades is fake science and fake reason is. Hill wants us to view truth as a sensation, something only to summon as we please. Now, C.S. Lewis, he writes very cleverly on this matter in the Screwtape Letters. And if you're not familiar with the Screwtape Letters, um, Uncle Screwtape, who's a demon in Hill, he writes to his nephew Wormwood. And because not all of us have re read the Screwtape Letters, I'm going to paraphrase this and change some of the words so it makes a little bit more sense. But if you go back and check my sermon notes, which I publish online, you'll get the exact quote there in it. And again, this title of the sermon is uh, Reason Belongs to God. And you can go to kingdomofthelogos.com to find it or the Facebook page for Jolton Church of the Nazarene or Kingdom of the Logos or something like that. Or just email me and I'll get you the exact quote. C.S. Lewis, he writes, and of course this is Uncle Screwtape, a demon writing to another demon, Wormwood, and he says, it sounds, my dear Wormwood, that if you supposed that argument, making cases, debating was the way to keep a man out of God's clutches, 
And that might have been so had he lived a few centuries earlier. At that time, humans still pretty well knew when a thing was proven and when it was not. And if something was proved, they really believed it. They still connected thinking with doing and were well prepared to alter their way of life as the result of a chain of reasoning. But now, with the weekly news, the, the constant media, and other such weapons, we have largely altered that. Because your man has become accustomed, ever since he was a boy, to having a dozen incompatible ideas dancing around his head as if it doesn't matter. He doesn't think of things as being primarily true or false, but as academic or practical, outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless. Jargon, not making arguments, not debating, not examining the, the objective facts, jargon is your best ally in keeping him from the church. By the very fact of arguing, of making cases and examining things, you awaken the patient's reason. And once it is awake, who can foresee the result? Even if a particular train of thought can be told and twisted and bent as to end in our favor, you will find that in pointing your man at a subject, you are strengthening your patient in the fatal habit of attending to universal issues and withdrawing his attention from the endless stream of immediate sensory experience. And what C.S. Lewis is trying to teach us through these demonic conversations is that reason and objective reality actually belong to God. It is hell that wants to distract you with subjectivity. The unreasonable world is what is trying to rob your mind. It is hell, the unreasonable world that wants you to believe things such as you have your truth, I have my truth, that group has their perspective, this group has their perspective. And if you actually embrace this sort of thought, you will stop thinking. It is the suicide of thought because what this means is that nothing is actually true. Both people can be wrong. One can be right and the other can be right. But both cannot be right. If you have two people come into a courtroom over something simple, we'll say somebody went in Walmart and they stole a $100 lamp. Well, somebody says, I stole the lamp. The other person says, or excuse me, somebody says, you know, that person stole the lamp. And the other person says, no, I didn't. Well, one person can be right, both of them can be wrong. The person who watched the lamp get stolen could have mistaken the identity. They can both be wrong, or one of them can be right, but they cannot both be right. It's not possible for them both to be right. And this idea that we say my truth, your truth, they're all the same, we need to just value people based on their perspective, that is the suicide of thought. It destroys critical thinking. What emboldens critical thinking is to say, okay, I'm a child of God who's a sinner and a fallen, fallen son of Adam. That went over there, he or she, you know, they're a fallen son of Adam, daughter of Eve too. You know what? I don't value them because of what secret knowledge they might have. I value them because they're a child of God. Oh, they're, they're made in the image of God and nothing is more important than that. If somebody tries to tell you there's something more important than being made in the image of God, shake the sand from your sandals and move on because there's not. You love them because they're a child of God and you take the love of Christ to them. That is how you actually enact the biblical worldview. But we've committed the suicide of thought where we don't value people on the innate breath of life. And the fact is, if people use their minds to actually contemplate the goodness of God, we actually start looking at the healings and miracles of Christ, which are not creeds or philosophies. They are material, evidence-based claims. If we start thinking about those, and again, keep in mind, even those who lived in the time of Jesus, who hated him as he walked on this earth, they did not denounce these miracles. They hated him, murderously hated him. But they knew that if you talked about them much at all, then people would start to realize he's the Messiah. So they often just tried to denounce them, silence them. They didn't denounce them in the way that they came out and said, well, you know, this didn't really happen. They typically come along and said, hey, we catch you speaking the name of Jesus, you can go into the amphitheater. We're putting you in jail. Uh, we'll cut your tongue out and don't you dare think that your family will ever be in polite society again. That's how they denounced the miracles. Not by contending with the material fact of them, but by ignoring that and threatening everybody who might talk about it. And there's a lot we can learn about from that evil because that evil is with us today. 
Those who disbelieved in Jesus did not denounce him on the basis of rejecting his miracles or resurrection. They just ignored those facts. And they made statements like, would God really care about your sexual life? Or they would say something like, how would a loving God permit suffering? Occasionally, little sentiments creep in like, would God really save me? Or would God really save you? You've done something too bad. You couldn't be saved. Sometimes these rejections come in the form of, well, I just don't simply believe in that. I don't believe that it's, it's, it's good to live by that morality. I don't believe that it's sinful to covet. I don't believe that the biblical sexual ethic is correct. Therefore, I don't believe in Jesus. Very, very rarely do you see someone come along and ever bring up the resurrection or the miracles when it comes to time to denounce Jesus. And what we find historically is that all rejections involve some form of ignoring the material truth of his miracles. Because if you actually start to square your mind around calming a storm, a bodily resurrection, then your mind is awakened to the fact that Jesus really is the Christ. Now, people may not immediately come to that conclusion, but their mind is put in that direction. Again, there's an order of things, and they're taking a step which has a foundation which cannot be revoked. When we go insane trying to, to somehow rationalize how Jesus could resurrect from the dead, again, not like some, some prophet or sorcerer or something like that who, who thinks they can summon the power of God, or in some cases do summon the power of God to work miracles, but somebody who actually is God the Son incarnate. Once people start to realize that, hmm. So let's look at some examples of how they really did denounce Jesus this way. In Acts chapter 4, verses 16 through 17, a ruling council brings in some of the apostles. So this is after Jesus has died, resurrected from the dead, ascended into heaven, and he has charged the church to carry on the gospel. Not in absence of Jesus, but in conjunction with Jesus, who's now in heaven. And in verse 16, the ruling council, they say, what are we going to do with these men? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a, a notable sign, a miracle, and we can't deny it. But to stop them from spreading anything further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. And what's fascinating is the psychology of this. They don't even mention Jesus' name and saying you cannot speak of Jesus. They're even careful. They don't even want to say Jesus' name out loud because they know the power of it. The council there in Acts chapter 4, it includes Annas and Caiaphas, two high priests who had interviewed Jesus and sent him bound to the cross. But by the time of the events in Acts chapter 4, which is only, you know, just a few weeks, a few months later, not long in history. You know, the blood of Jesus is still fresh on all of them. They realize that they cannot argue against the factual truth of who Jesus is. If people know anything about the resurrection or the healings done in his name, even if those stories are told in a really biased way, if any light is shed on that at all, they know that the truth that he's the Messiah is going to spread. Therefore, the only choice you have is to censor the discussion. If any light is given on the subject at all, even in a biased way, they run the risk of the truth getting out. Their only choice, their only hope to stop the gospel is to outlaw any mention of it. And this is something that we need to, to really hold in our modern world because if someone does not want a subject talked about in the public sphere, history tells us overwhelmingly that's because shedding any light on the subject, even in a biased way or not, talking about a subject at all will disprove the official story. Whenever things are silenced, and oftentimes people lie about why they're silenced, they'll say, oh, it's violence, it's dangerous for your own good. Whenever things are silenced, it's because if they're talked about, the official story will be disproven. And I know a lot of times our hearts don't want to agree to that because we may, you know, we may like the official story, we may not, whatever reason. But the fact of the matter is, and one of the pieces of wisdom which Scripture hands to us is that whenever something is, is censored, usually that's because... The world is threatened by it. One doesn't have to silence things which disprove themselves. And let me give an example of that. I, we're going to talk about some, some evils going on in the world right now um, here for a little bit. One of the big problems we have in our world is that shoes are made by slaves in sweatshops. Um, and, I, and I'm going to get to some more stuff that pertains directly to America and, and big issues going on in America here in a moment. But I want to start with these shoes in sweatshops. 
And I've been looking for a new pair of shoes to wear in the house. And not house shoes, but I put on sneakers in the house. I'm like Fred Rogers. But when I come in, I've been looking for a new pair of shoes. And somebody recommended to me a pair of shoes made by a company that claims to be virtuous. And I've been looking for shoes that aren't made by slaves in sweatshops. So that's why somebody offered the name of this company to me. And I said, you know, I'll look into it. I'll check them out. And I go to their website and it talks about how, you know, we've got environmentally friendly stuff. You buy a pair of our shoes, we give a pair to, you know, impoverished nations. And they never would answer the question, at least on their website, they wouldn't even acknowledge the question of whether or not their shoes are made by slaves in sweatshops. You leave their website and you look about, you know, are your shoes made from, you know, sweatshops? And they won't give a straight answer to that question. They actually get this question all the time, but they won't give a straight answer to it. And here's a piece of wisdom for you. If someone cannot give a straightforward answer to the question, are your shoes made in sweatshops? They can't answer that in broad daylight, then the answer is not good. If something is indeed false, the best tactic for defeating it is to shed more light on the subject in the daylight. Not to cut out the tongues of dissenters and hope that others forget their dissent. And in our modern world, we are afflicted by this, this occurrence. We see a lot of censorship, and it's evil. It's a form of the sin of bearing false witness. You're trying to manipulate the public and other people, not just public, but you know, even in your own homes, you're trying to manipulate by not allowing light to be shed on something. If something is good and true, shed light on it and move on. In our modern world, we are afflicted by an inability to receive truth. Sometimes it's an outright rejection of the truth. Other times it's just a lack of interest. But regardless of intention, our world has this problem where we only tend to believe something is true based on whether or not we like to live with the consequences of that something being true. Rather than letting the truth be its own reward, letting goodness be its own reward, we try to use truth like a tool. We'll only believe something to be true or acknowledge it as true if we like to live with the consequences of that. And again, you can look at someone who's like an addict. And if someone doesn't want to, to address the fact they're being an addict, they'll just deny it. Well, I'm not an addict because I, I don't want to live with the consequences of being an addict. Things in our modern world are only held as true if they give us the desired outcome. Everything else is ignored and outlawed. And we see this everywhere. If people don't like what it means for something to be true, they'll just flat out ignore it and be like, oh, well, that's that's conspiracy, that's something. They won't really deal with the material facts. They'll just brand it as something and then move on. And let's talk a little bit about abortion. If we consider the fact that a child has a unique human DNA at the moment of conception, then we will indeed realize that aborting an unborn son or daughter is indeed murdering a child of God at his or her most defenseless state. Now, one of the things I find interesting is that there are many in the world, even in the secular world, who will happily quote something like 1 John 3.15, which says, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. You'll find academic scholars, biblical scholars, who will write about how we can't speak roughly. We, we don't need to you know, talk in a way that is harsh and brutal because that makes us murderers. And, you know, there's biblical evidence to support that. But a lot of times people will, will make this statement so they can feel morally superior in giving a tut-tut to those who speak roughly. But at the same time, when it comes to the abortion of bearing false witness, and it, it usually is the same people who, who talk about how important it is to have character that speaks well, that will also use euphemisms to call abortion health care. They ignore the very fact of murder because they don't want to openly be advancing murder. And so they just call it something else, as if that can change reality, as if you can decide whether or not, you know, killing an unborn child is, is a soul or not. You can make that decision for that, that child over there. You can't. They ignore the very fact of murder because they don't want to live with the consequential fact that abortion is killing a son or daughter at their most defenseless state. The assertion that abortion is health care is not rooted in logic, reason, or truth. It's rooted in the desire to appear morally superior. And we know that it's not really about something like justice or mercy because any recognition, any light shed on it that says, you know, a child is indeed a child, that will immediately destroy any notion of justice or mercy. And it is through this attitude 
that we find a lot of people who are so obsessed with taking the like furthest extremity of things, getting, you know, things out of their proper order, as I've talked about, taking things out of the hierarchy. Um, they want to slander the church as being ignorant and moral, you know, correct to the church and say, we've got to have this, 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 this character. But they ignore the fact that they had to stop kissing the golden toes of a statue to the demon Molech in order to speak. And we find this all the time. People, they want to come out and chastise and tell you that you're a fool while they had to stop kissing an idol in order to tell you that. I find it so fascinating that a lot of the people in our nation who talk about these dangerous conspiracy theories will also sit there and tell you you're evil if you don't want children to be sexually mutilated. They'll openly advance this whole idea that men can be women and women can be men and say that it's good for a child to, to mutilate themselves permanently and for adults to consent to that. And you are the villain if you want to, to step in and say, this is irrational, this needs a better course of help than, than trying to, to mutilate a child. The same people who want to talk and say that, you know, going against the official story is dangerous are the same ones who want to advance obviously insane and very tragic and sad evil. And despite this sad degeneration into paganism, we actually need to count it as joy whenever people kiss a statue to Baal before slandering us in our faith. For the more open the world is about its paganistic insanity, the easier it is for us to draw the distinction between the way of life and the way of death. James 1-2 instructs us, Count it all as joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you encounter various trials. If you can actually visibly see somebody do something so double standard, you can see them stop kissing an idol and then turn around to, to fuss at you. If you can see that, if time is so close together that you can see on a specific issue somebody say one thing, and then when the tables are turned and something no longer benefits them, so they, they have a total different attitude on, on say, riots or, or anything like that, they just change their tune based on the parties involved, not based on the material fact of, of good and evil, count it as joy. Hell is filled with storytellers and yarn eaters, people who like to twist and contrive narratives. But the seat of heaven has a watchful eye through which all things unknown will be made known. On the Day of Judgment, nobody is pulling a scam of saying, well, you know, that, that's not really murder, it's health care. Nobody's pulling that sort of scam over God. Nobody's pulling a euphemism trying to twist the narrative. That ain't happening on the Day of Judgment. God is one of truth and the business of making things known. And at the heart of revival is recognition of an absolute and almighty God. Christ wants us to step into the light and walk in the truth. And the more we illuminate Christ's authority over the wind, and the storm, the more the gospel is spread. If God is with us, then God wants us to be transformed. One of the things that we have to understand is that salvation, if God really is with you, you should not be viewing the world the same way that the world views the world. You should have eyes and ears that are changed. And I'm a Nazarene. been in the church of the Nazarene my whole life, and I've got generations of Nazarenes before me. But one of the things which really irks me is there's a lot of people who believe sanctification has everything to do with our temperament, how we speak, how we present ourselves. And they think it has nothing to do with the issues that we see in the world or how we talk about them. They also believe that if the church is to be relevant, then we need to talk about these issues. We need to appeal to that next generation. And they forget the fact that every generation throughout history has had young people who want to rebel against their parents. Nobody likes to be told they're a sinner. Enforcing the biblical ethic on any range of issues has never been popular with the next generation. Going back to Rome, telling people not to go into the pagan temples probably wasn't the, the most warm, fuzzy way of going to preach to a Gentile. But yet the church did it. Because preaching the real message, the real gospel that says the kingdom of heaven is here, you need to repent. Because you're a child of God, that's why you're valuable. God wants to make you into a noble creature. High aspirations. Be excellent in all things because your God is holy and excellent. When Christ displays his authority over the sea, he is showing us that he is indeed genuine. He's not here to dismantle creation, but out of love to restore it. And when we think about the great sea, it is a mystery. Its depths, they wait in eternal darkness, but yet God wants to do good things. Christ is Lord even over the sea. 
You know, it, it rests there in that eternal darkness far beyond the reach of ordinary man, but yet Christ, the very Son of Man, the Son of God, He has authority over it. The miracles of Christ are not a creed, philosophy, or even a narrative. They are a fact, a piece of evidence that one must either reconcile or reject. They have to either somehow sort it out in their brain or ignore it. And most people choose to ignore it because the more you try to sort it out, the more you find yourself moving in the direction of truth, that Christ is indeed the Messiah, which I know. Christ means Messiah, so that's almost a redundant sentence. Jesus is indeed the Messiah. How about that for some clarity? Our modern world is extraordinarily concerned with whether an idea is what the scholars say or if it's merely an opinion held by the non-college educated whether something is the prevailing narrative or conspiracy theory, we talk in this stuff all the time, and it is the suicide of thought. I know I'm going to get worked up and have revival by myself here in my little home studio on a mid-Monday, but it is the suicide of thought to think in these terms. Now, sure, it's important to, to kind of know where people are coming from, but that's not the first principle. That doesn't actually make something true or not. If somebody comes along and tells you, hey, it's 12 o'clock noon, you know, I've got my watch on me right now. It says 11.47. doesn't really matter what perspective I come from. Now, it could if I'm lying to you and you want to sort out why I'm lying to you. I mean, there's, there's things down the street. But if it's 11.47 in the morning, it's 11.47 in the morning. But we have got ourselves in this suicide of thought where we entertain all perspectives as if they're equally truthful. And if they're all equally truthful, then they have no truth, no meaning at all because... Stuff is just ir irreconcilable. We've seen people in the last year on just about every issue you want to think about come out and take every sides of an issue, say things within like a day's timeline that are just utterly contradictory. You see this, sadly, with the reality of the coronavirus, which is a real virus. But you've seen people come out and say things that are just utterly contradictory. And then later in other interviews, the same health officials say, yeah, we're kind of saying what we... We feel like we'll actually get people to obey with this more so than what's actually true. And you can't just ignore that. You can't just be the lady who dances and says, my culture is dying behind me. All the people who say, well, we're here to fortify dem democracy, so that's why we kind of got to it, suspend it for a little bit. You can't just do that. It's not fine. Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. And we're in a time right now where we're reaping the fruits of the suicide of thought. Evil is just everywhere, folks. We don't need to be yoking ourselves and outsourcing our courage, our faith. We need to stop putting our trust in other things and, and you know, even getting mad and angry and rejecting parts of our family over stuff that are just worldly affairs when we should be preaching the gospel of Christ Jesus because that is what actually shapes the worldly affairs and that is what brings us back to a, a, a nation where we can love people that we disagree with. That is what takes us to the good, the true, and the beautiful. And we've been very shy about speaking about the truths of, of the gospel, that they are material facts. Christianity is not built on a narrative or creed. It is filled with narratives and creeds, but they're secondary to the material fact. The fact is, Jesus Christ, he either came to us, died on a cross, and resurrected, or he did not. That is the premise of our faith. That's not a creed. That is a claim to a fact. Reason belongs to God. And if that is fact, that fact is true, then suddenly all the songs, the culture, all the other stuff, it matters beyond anything we could imagine. But above all is the fact that God is God. People can bicker all day long about whether they think him a sorcerer, but the thing is this. If they're having that conversation, if they've actually recognized the hard fact that he calmed a storm, then something serious is awakened. He's set in motion. Not a pathology which moves towards chaos, but you set in motion a series of events which opens up the mind. There's good things that happen on that. We shouldn't be shy about that. Have those conversations. That will bring people closer to God. It gives glory to God. God is God. He can handle a little, little critical thinking. He, he wants that from us, in fact. That's why he made us in his image. That's one of the, the, the principal things about being made in the image of God. The suicide of thought is a very serious problem in our modern world. We have to realize that reason belongs to God. So I know I've gone quite long in this sermon, and I want to start wrapping things up. I want us to go to Ephesians chapter 6, where it has verses 10 through 12, and it says, Finally, 
Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against the enemies of blood and flesh, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is something we must realize. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of this present darkness. That is where the real battle lies. Our battle is not merely wound up in the flesh and blood, though it affects that. But the real battle is that spiritual battle. The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, that is where the real battle is. And when you start to recognize the sinister dimensions of the evil against with which we truly stand, that can be discouraging. But don't let it be discouraging. We have to raise up courage. We're called to be still and know that God is God, as Psalm 46.10 tells us. But we're also called to contend for the gospel, as instructed in Jude chapter 1, where Jude informs the church and says, I find it necessary to write an appeal to you. Contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Certain intruders have stolen in among you. People who long ago were designated for this condemnation as ungodly. They pervert the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. You know, pay attention. There are people who have stolen in. Deal with it. Peter gives us clarity on how we walk this straight and narrow pathway. In 2 Peter chapter 3, 11 and 12, he says, All things will be destroyed in this way. So what sort of people ought you to be? People with holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because all the heavens and the earth will be dissolved and the elements melted in fire? Yes, this is who we should be. People who wait on the Lord, but also hasten the ministry of Christ. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. So we must be patient in waiting, but also, you know, actively working on bringing about Christ's kingdom. And the world often wants to bait us into going to war with one another over petty things. But Christ wants us to preach his message because that's actually how you sort out the petty things. It's not that you ignore the petty things, but you, you deal with them from the fortified structure that God has given us. You deal with it while wearing the armor of God, not while throwing it off. You want to go to war with the world? Okay, well, use the language of God. Don't use the world's vocabulary at all. Because if you do that, you're throwing away the armor of God and you're stepping into the devil's arena with no tools and you're letting them rig the whole system against you. Don't do that. You're not going to win that game. You're not going to beat the devil at his own game. We are called to contend for the faith. Put on that armor of God and use the great tools God has given us. Talk about the things God has told us to talk about. That opens the mind. Jesus does not debate the world in the way that it wanted, but instead he affirmed an entirely different way of thinking. And it was the gospel, unwavering truth. And it alone is the way to the good, the true, and the beautiful. That's why we'll wrap up this message. I thank you for spending time with me today. Again, I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and let's close by saying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. So on that note, God love you, and have a blessed day.